Hi, Hi everyone. everyone. I'm John. And I'm Georgia. And we're here inside your ears to talk about the mac and cheese of movies. This This is is Comfort Films. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 49 of the Comfort Films podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing the 1988 cult classic, They Live. Yeah, we're really going off the rails, guys. You know, <laughs> I mean, we're doing like scary movies now. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, I don't know why that's comforting, but maybe we'll get into that in a second. Absolutely. I got some <laughs> stories. I got some uh, stories. This bro. is the first of our John Carpenter horror series. So we're going to do John Carpenter movies on the horror side. He did some other genres as well, like mm-hmm. action that we definitely We'll probably hit later because we love this dude. He's so good. Uh, but for for scary season, October, we're going to be talking John Carpenter horror movies. And this is number one. So They Live is kind of a sci-fi action horror, I guess we would drill down and yeah, say. absolutely. Um, and it stars the late, great Canadian pro wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper. Mm-hmm. A legend who was actually the first wrestler to be in a number one movie. Wow. There were a lot of wrestlers that were in not a number one movie yeah. that, that I can think of. I remember Suburban Commando. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hulk Hogan did, did some movies. Um, <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that. Andre the Giant had The Princess Bride, though. That is true. Which is phenomenal. That is true. Yeah. Um, but I guess that wasn't number one, because I'm reading that Roddy Piper was the first number one movie wrestler um so this movie is based on a short story by ray nelson that was published in 1963 called eight o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. it's a really interesting story we actually read that before we started our rewatch this time and that was also turned into a comic in 1986 and i've seen some panels from it it was really cool it's got like kind of a noir feel to it oh wow i want to check that out um yeah all those things are probably available online somewhere so check them out um i do have to say that reading the short story for me like did enrich the movie because this is probably i don't know how many times i've seen this one i didn't watch this until i was older i think i didn't watch it until i watched it with you yeah the first time i introduce um, you to new things Georgia. you do <laughs> well i'm surprised by that though because i was a pretty big horror movie kid like i you know i started reading stephen king when i was like 10 or 11 mm-hmm. and i you know then really watched a lot of horror movies that was kind of my favorite thing i just loved it yeah um which is kind of a good thing to talk about next because i wanted to talk about how a horror movie can be a comfort film and for me it's definitely because of like this nostalgia um that's kind of the first thing i was into was like mysteries or horror i really liked that kind of genre fiction when i was a kid and i just remember loving to watch these types of movies um My mom and I would always watch them together. She also enjoys this. She's the one who introduced me to reading Stephen King when I was 10 years old. Blame her. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Mama, for ruining me as a child and handing me, you know, (laughs) an Edgar Allan Poe short story collection and a dictionary when I was six years old. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's really what, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with because it's what I've been reading and enjoying since, you know, just about the time that I could read. Um, and so I get a warm and fuzzy feeling when Halloween season rolls around and I get to break out these movies. I also, I also always stop whatever I'm reading <laughs> in October and just start reading scary fiction, um, short stories or listening to like audio plays of Twilight Zone. It's another thing I really love to listen to. Yeah. So yeah, this is a great time of year for me. Um, what about you? Would you consider horror movies to be comforting? Absolutely. I mean, I grew up in Massachusetts, and on television all the time growing up were edited horror movies. And I have an imagination, so I like to see different things happening. Like, I liked werewolves. I liked vampires. I liked all of these things. And I've talked about this many times before. I felt like, as a kid, there was like a wall up in terms of what you could get in terms of information. What really surprised me in school was that we did get to read Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> and I was like, did somebody drop the ball? Like, did somebody not know what's going on in these stories? My dad was a huge Edgar Allan Poe fan. My aunt was awesome. She always would send me Stephen King. I got interested in horror very young. And it didn't scare me. I just found it fascinating. You know, I would stay up with my friends. I loved watching horror movies with my father. It was like the R-rated movies I could watch because it was just like killing, you know? <laughs> That's I mean, okay. <laughs> right, killing's totally good. And, I mean, you know, my dad was hilarious because he would provide like this running commentary <laughs> throughout. And, and that made it even better for me. You know, and also being a young boy, the fact that you could occasionally see some breasts. I mean, I mean, I mean, I was offended. You know, I just back then I was like, you know, I'm only watching this. If everyone keeps their clothes on, no one swears. Oh, I mean, God. that's the kind of horror film I like. So, yeah, no, I had a really great time with horror films. As a kid, and I continued as an adult. Um, you know, the only horror films that really get me are like the, the really tortury ones. Yeah, I'm not that into those either. No. But I, you know, even like slashers and stuff. My mom and I, I remember when I was really little watching Nightmare on Elm Street with my mom and just cackling with laughter because we found it so funny. And yeah, that was kind of my experience with horror movies. Like, yeah, they were scary, but they were fun. And, and I just remember having some such a good time with my mom watching these or reading these books together mm -hmm. and talking about them. And, you know, we just had a blast. And I'm really glad that you had that experience as well. Yeah. Because, you know, it's just something I don't think I could do without. It's like my favorite thing. <laughs> so. it's, it's, it's just really great. There's just so much that goes into these films. I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street, I remember seeing that for the first time. It was a babysitter. And what the babysitter would do is leave me, like, in the basement with her video collection. And I could watch anything. And they went and did homework. I, I don't know, hung out, whatever. It was totally cool for me because I was, like, living the life. You know? So I watched Nightmare on Elm Street at my babysitter's basement after school one day. And, man, that movie. Wow. That yeah. scared the hell out of me. You know, in the very, very ending of Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay, I'm not going to ruin Nightmare on Elm Street. It's, it's you know, an amazing horror classic. Um, but, yeah, I was, I was thrilled, you know? So, I mean, getting to talk about 
these films on the Comfort Films podcast is great because, it, again, it's something else. It's it's something about who we are that we haven't really discussed that much. Like, we love the idea, you know, like you say, of these warm, fuzzy things. And you even yeah, said you feel like the horror movies are warm, fuzzy things. And, and you know what? <laughs> Some of them really are. Because uh, we're you know? weirdos, but that's okay. I mean, <laughs> we're strange people. Yeah, I mean, like, when you're talking about Nightmare on Elm Street, I'm thinking, like, oh, next October, maybe we could do a Wes Craven series. You right. know, because these, these movies are the things I love, and they just are the things that I want to keep watching. Yeah. And, yeah, they're scary, but they're silly and and a lot of times like especially in the case of they live it's a it's a message movie i mean there's a really deep theme happening here and horror is something where people who make these movies or write these stories are exploring what scares us as a people Mm -hmm. and i think that that's an important thing to think about and talk about and explore and in They Live, it's done in a really brilliant way. And I love that. It's also got like the sci-fi element, which we both really love as well. Sure. Um, and John Carpenter, I mean, I love a lot of his movies. The first movie that I actually went to see by myself was In the Mouth of Madness, mm. which is another John Carpenter horror movie. So, yeah, I think that this is a great one to start off with um, because it's just awesome. And uh, let's dig in. Well, you know, this is a movie that I wanted to see from the second I saw the previews. I was like, oh, wow, I need to see this. And it was not something I could go see. This came out in 1988. And uh, when did it come out? May? Uh, November. November. Okay, so I'm 11 years old at the time. Going to They Live would not fly. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, really, like, I'm going to do this someday. I'm going to do this. You know, maybe on video I'll get to see it. And it just it just didn't happen for years, you know. And when I finally did get to see it, this completely, you know, lived up to my expectations. I mean, I love horror and I also, I, I love all genres. I just love movies, <laughs> you know, and, and science fiction, yes. Horror, yes. And, and there is comedy in here. There's some great satire. Oh, yeah. And action. There's yes. a lot of action as well. It kind of has everything. Well, that's what's nice about it is it's not like... You know, it's not one thing. And, you know, people might be like, oh, that's just a B-movie. But no, that's just the rapper. And it's because it's like, what do we like here? This is comfort films. We like the mac and cheese of films. This helps it to go down smooth. Like if somebody (laughs) gave you a dissertation, you know, on what this film is actually about, I mean, I don't know how many of us would actually read it. We might go, yeah, that that, that sounds really smart. I mean, you know? <laughs> that would be it. You can go read about the horrible situation of, you know, the world right now if you want to, but I don't think you want to. No. I mean, it's kind of like watching the news, like who's interested in that? But if I, I can, <laughs> you know, see a movie that kind of dramatizes some of the ills of society yeah the way that this one does yeah I'm, I'm into that i love it i mean you also have just some really great actors in this mm. i i am a huge huge fan of keith david he's great anytime i see keith david is in a movie i get so 
excited. Yeah, I mean, the guy's voice is so primo. Right? Um, he's actually Captain Anderson in Mass Effect, which is, like, my favorite video game. Mm-hmm. So, anytime I hear him, I'm like, yeah, Captain Anderson, yeah. Well, he, uh, yeah, I mean, he can do no wrong in my book. I'll, I'll watch him in anything. You know, and this was his second time around with John Carpenter. His other movie was The Thing. Which is great, and oh, he's yeah. great in it. And he's so good. And then, like, Piper, I mean, wrestling was huge growing up. I went to go see wrestling with my father. I remember, like, it was late on a school night, but I got to go. So my dad's <laughs> like, well, you get good grades. You get to do these things. And I was <laughs> oh, like, all nice. right. I love good grades. Your dad was cool. He was super cool. Yeah, I never got into wrestling. Um, I knew, like, everybody I knew was into wrestling. I really wasn't. Although there was a wrestling cartoon. Oh, yeah. And I really was into it. So I knew who, like, you know, some of the wrestlers were because of that. Yeah. But I really never watched wrestling. I found it fake even when I was little. Um, I immediately was just like, eh. But, I mean, that's probably why Roddy Piper is a good actor. Because he was being, you know, wrestling is acting. Like, there's a huge element of acting and stunt work. Mm-hmm. to wrestling and he brought those existing talents you know into this um and did just a really good job like he was such a good choice for this movie absolutely um because as nada he kind of needs to be a blank slate you know um and he also needs to be kind of dim <laughs> i mean like i'm not trying to be mean here but like the character isn't some great brain you know? No, it's a guy that, that it's working for a living and he's trying to get by. And we see very early in the film that John Nada is a guy that is trying to get work, but no one will hire him. Yeah. They're judging him, you know, on his appearance. They, they, you know, they can get the feel that, like, I think this guy's kind of a drifter. I don't know that I really want to bring him in. And very early in the film, it establishes the lines of class which is really what they live is all about. It's yeah. about the division between the wealthy and the poor. Yeah, and I mean, with him, he's he's like a manual laborer. Mm-hmm. He's a you know he's a good person. He wants to work for a living. Yeah, he wants to do the things that we're supposed to do, especially at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, Keith David is as Frank is kind of this voice of dissent. Right. At the beginning where he's talking about how, you know, the government is bad and the way that people are treated is bad. And, you know, Nada is like, no, you know, we we're supposed to do this. You know, I I trust the system. And he kind of has to be naive in a way at the beginning so that he can be curious enough and open enough to experience what he's about to experience when he puts on those sunglasses for the first time. Yeah, I I mean, what it also talks about, in my opinion, when we look at John Nada, the reason that we see him as he is is because he has not had the benefit of education. He has not had the luxury of having a home, of being able, you know, to study. He no. just had to work. And when you work all the time and, and you're robbed of your education, I, I mean, what are you what are you thinking about? You're thinking about living second to second. Mm-hmm. Everything is hand to mouth living. You know, his name, you know, I finally got that joke. Okay. So his name is John Nada, right? 
So nada is nothing in Spanish. So John nothing. I mean, that's like jack shit. You know what I mean? And that's what our character has. He's got jack shit. Well, he actually has his own tools that he does mention. So yes. he doesn't have, you know, jack shit. He but, has mean, his tools. How did he get those? He got those through his work. You know, he's worked. He's he's strived. Yeah. You know, and, and this is the person that you can respect. Mm -hmm. And that's something that kind of follows everything throughout the movie is that you have the idea that there's these people that don't really have anything except what they've earned for themselves mm -hmm. and they're brave you know and they fight and they want to fight for everyone yes. you know and and this is something that is a result of their struggle you know they've struggled so hard and yet instead of just thinking about becoming you know comfortable most of them want to fight to make everything good for everyone you do have your exception oh yeah your notable exception of uh carpenter staple buck flower who plays <laughs> like the old drifter guy at the beginning who later you know shows up in a tux <laughs> and and, you know, it's kind of, is he's like the turncoat of the movie. Yeah. But for the most part, these people, you know, they're fighting. They're fighting to, to free the world from well, the menace of these ghoul aliens who, you know, have enslaved us. It, yeah, and, and it's a very difficult battle. Because who is going to believe you? And if they do believe you, what are they going to do about it? Because... You don't have the means to stand up against this group, this yeah. group of aliens. Because as we see, the aliens are everywhere. The aliens are not interested in the humans' problems. We mm -hmm. actually have that great scene in the store, right? <laughs> I love that scene. Yeah, so the scene in the store... This is after uh, Nada just first gets the sunglasses and he's experiencing this world for the first time and seeing things the way they are. And he walks into a supermarket and he sees, you know, normal people and also aliens. Mm -hmm. And we have like the scene where these two guys are talking. One is an alien, one is a human. And the human is like decrying all of these problems that he has. And the alien is kind of just like, just let it, you know, just leave it. Just, show, you know, he just doesn't care at all. He doesn't want to engage about this. Mm -mm. He just wants the guy to shut up. And, you know, that that's something that keeps happening. Like, these aliens are kind of rich people. And they kind of sniff, you know, at Nada at the newsstand. It's like the rich old guy buying the paper. Mm -hmm. He's really snotty to nada in the store this old woman who's clearly rich and is wearing like nice clothes is disgusted by him and i love like all the things he says to her it's like one of my favorite parts of the movie <laughs> he, he's like he's in shock at this point still and he doesn't understand what's happening and he sees this lady and you know he bumps into her and she's just disgusted and he's he just starts yelling at her about how ugly she is. And, and he says, you, you're okay to this person next to him that's a real human. And then he points to her and she's like, this one, real fucking ugly. 
And then he tells her she looks like her head fell on the cheese dip back in 1957. <laughs> and he calls her formaldehyde face. All of which are wonderful to me. Um, but, you know, when you put yourself in his position at this point, he's terrified. Like, you know, I'm guessing this guy's what? In his like late 30s, early 40s. He's lived a really difficult life. He's yes. seen a lot, but he has never seen this. And it's scary, you know? And this in this particular scene, I think, is when he is just super horrified and doesn't know what's going on. And, of course, all the aliens understand that he sees them for who they really are. And they start talking into their watches you know, because this is like their communication device. And it was so, so funny because when you're watching it this time, you were like, oh, it's, <laughs> you should say, I guess, what it was like. Well, when I saw the aliens go into their watches, I'm like, oh, my God, John Carpenter predicted Karen, you know, because <laughs> all these aliens are just Karens. They go into their watch whenever they see someone, you know, that they don't like, that they're suspect of. You know, it also reminded me of Hot Fuzz with the greater good and all the townspeople having their walkie-talkies whenever something <laughs> happened. You know, it's, I mean, it's a very smart film because, it, okay, the idea is absurd and I love it. You know, the idea that you put on sunglasses and then you see reality, you know, I, I think that's great. And also, you know, for all of you out there that cannot see us, Georgia and I are both wearing sunglasses in our closet. Yes. Because we want to let you know that we see reality. Okay. <laughs> and I just am going to say I might do this every time because it really helps me with all the lights that are on in here <laughs> to have my shades on. Um, but yeah, I, I loved your point that these guys, you know, these aliens talking into their watches was like these Karens who complain about, you know, people living their lives out in the world today, you know, jumping on their cell phone and calling the police because, you know, people had the audacity to have a party in the park or something. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, well, this movie really does show you a lot of things, unfortunately, that have happened. Um, you know, homelessness. Homelessness is huge. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not, like, you know, telling you something you don't know. But, I mean, you know, living in Los Angeles, I grew up in the suburbs. So I, I wasn't really, you know, that aware of just how big the problem was. And now firsthand, after living in Los Angeles for 11 years, and I see you know, the, the situation, and I see it growing. I mean, this is hard because it just means that many people are having that much of a difficult time that where they have to go is the street. Mm. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's, it, it gets worse and worse. Yeah. I mean, I think John Carpenter's point, you know, in 1988 was that it was terrible and something needed to be done about it. And he sure. actually hired homeless people to work in this movie, you know, he hired them to be in the background and, and paid them, you know, and I think that's awesome, by I the way. I think completely awesome. It just shows you what a great person we're working with. It's a great artist and it's a great person. I actually believe that at the newsstand, a uh, person that had a speaking part was actually a homeless person as I well. I think they said that in the, I do think they said that in the commentary. Yeah. And, you know, to me, that just shows that somebody who's practicing what they preach, you know, because he's doing this movie where he has like, 
a message mm-hmm. about, you know, how we shouldn't throw away these people. Right. And he's actually using them in the film. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's really cool. Um, and yeah, I, I think that the, the sad fact though is that this problem hasn't gotten any better. No. You know, we're, we're ages later and we still have a really serious homeless problem in LA and around the country and all these different big cities, but particularly because we live here and we see it every day. Mm-hmm. And also, it doesn't seem like anybody wants to do anything about it. And and any solutions that I do here are either not enough, or they just involve displacement of people. And I just don't think that that's it. I think that people need to... We need people to stand up and, like, do something that matters on a big scale um, to help people. Especially after the pandemic. Because, you know for there's so many factors at play right now we have people who do can't have jobs don't have jobs lost their jobs because they had covid there's some people who had covid you know multiple times and we're trying to hold jobs the whole time yeah and you know people are the eviction moratorium is about to end which means that people are going to start getting evicted and the problem here is that it costs so much money to get an apartment because the the median the median price for an apartment rent for a one bedroom is like over two thousand dollars I think, and that's a lot of friggin' money like to come up with and to move into a place you have to get your credit checked you have to come up with all these this money for deposits and some people just can't do that you know and if you get kicked out of your rent controlled place because you can't afford that you're certainly not gonna have an easy time going and finding a new place that's going to be market priced. And, you know, I I just think that we're really getting into a situation that's super untenable and I don't know how it's going to get fixed. I'm not like, you know, I'm not smart enough here to propose a solution, but I do think that we need to be more aware of this and more cognizant Because you can't have a place where there is only rich and poor um, and no middle. I mean, we're dealing with that in this movie where the middle class is kind of disappearing. It's gone. I mean, in this movie, we have the wealthy and then we have the workers and that's it. And what we see in this film is that, you know, the aliens do not want you know, the humans on their level. No. And it, it says something about, you know, just again, the, the separation between the two. And it's funny that you can go to a sci-fi horror movie and find something that's this deep and is this strong of a statement, just like you said. But, I mean, really, what John Carpenter is talking about, it's he's talking about the ruling class, and they also, in this, you know, universe... In this future, they control the police. The police are just an extension of their power. They are, you know, at their beck and call. They can do whatever they want. So it's terrifying to think that, you know, it's like law enforcement could simply be the henchmen uh, of the ruling class. We also have, you know, people that just seem so... 
Oh, just so sad. That doesn't even come close enough to, to explain it. You, there's actually one scene in the film where one of the aliens is packing the, the trunk of their car with all these goods that they've bought. And, you know, on the there's like three people. And uh, on the right, you can tell it's someone that works for this woman. And it's just, there's so much depression in her face. It's like, she can't even, she can't even stand it. She doesn't know, you know, how she's going to make it one more day. And also this hits home for us too, because this movie is actually set in Los Angeles. I mean, these locations, you know, are, are right around us. And then you see that everything that people go to and they live for entertainment is actually tainted you know because the ruling class have subliminal messages in everything and advertising for years you know people want you to buy things this pulls back the curtain all the way and says that everything every single thing that we see has another message and that that message you know whether it be in print on television you know uh, just you know something that you hear maybe on the radio or, or or maybe a quiet message if someone tries to break that flow of you know the these rules that this control you get a headache and and that's what they show in the film because mm-hmm. there's actually a television broadcast happening and I'll call them the rebels okay they actually break in on that broadcast and they try to say to everyone you know you are being lied to you are being controlled there are messages all around you and you need to unplug and it's you know this film puts it you know in in a a simpler uh uh terms than, than than the issue really can be sometimes because what we have here is we have you know these aliens that want to kill you, that want to crush you, that want to put you down. And so what what do you do? You stop the aliens. And in this case, this is John Nada's mission. And what he does is he shoots up the satellites that beam out all of this information. You know, so, I mean, at the end of the film, I mean, we have something that, that is tragic. Boy, I'm really jumping all over. But, you know, you have something that is really tragic because we lose John Nada. And we lose Frank. Um, but, but it's we, heroic. Correct. I mean, they die in an act of heroism where they expose these aliens for the control that they are. Yeah. You know, we see what, you know, the president really looks like or what, you know, these the guy sitting in the bar really looks like. There's a hilarious final scene where it's actually a couple having sex and the woman like realizes that she's having sex with one of these like ghouls just really funny i mean i laugh every time on that hey, what's the line <laughs> hey baby what's wrong yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and by the way that's the great jeff amada who's the stunt coordinator on the film and he also played a lot of these alien ghouls um and that was one of the ones that they pointed out was him it was very funny um but yeah i mean it's it is a thing where i think we're saying a lot about homelessness about the dissolution of the middle class because really what happens here is either the middle class people are kind of brought down and they lose you know status or they're promised the ability to move up 
Yeah. Which is really just another form of enslavement. I don't know. It's like they're middle managers or something. Yep. So, you know, they're still working for this evil force, but they're being promised things, you know, like, oh, you'll get status. You'll get a nice place to live. And that is uh, really a, a dig at consumerism. So there's a big anti-consumerism message here as well. And again, I think it's something that probably was super pertinent in 1988 and is even more pertinent in 2022 because not only are we still dealing with advertising in the way that we were at that time, but we also have an extra level with like social media marketing and influencer culture where, you know, you are being advertised to all the time and you don't even know, you know? Like, unless you're hyper aware, you could be being advertised to. And I think that, you know, these messages are just constantly coming across in media of all sorts that you need to look a certain way. You need to have a certain car. You need to have certain clothes to be accepted. And it's feeding on our deepest fears of being rejected by, you know, our peer group or our society because we're not participating in this game of consumerism. And I just think that's such a powerful message in this movie. I love it. What I like is at the very end, they actually take that power and they turn it around. Because when the aliens are exposed for who they are, what they look like, they're the ones now that are going to be ostracized. <laughs> Everyone's going to be like, whoa, who's this? You know, and, you know, when you realize that all of these people are the ones that are telling you how to live, you're going to be like, OK, yeah. you know, we're, we're not going to go for this anymore. It's, it, you know, John Carpenter is such a smart director because he shows us both sides he shows us how wonderful it can be when we all work together you know we see you know this network of people that come together one of the scenes that i like very much is when john nada is at the construction site and he goes to the foreman hey you know can i get a job you know and it's like it's a union shop and he's like well can i see the shop steward and, you know, it's like we show some guys that work there and they look happy, you know, because you get the feeling, OK, these guys have an honest living. They work hard. They can make enough money to live. And then the next thing we see is we actually see John Nada working at this site. It's a real success. Mm -hmm. And everyone there, you know, is, is working together because they're working construction. You're working on a project. So it, it's like you have this unity. You know, you have the, this brotherhood and you have a living. And this is where he meets Frank, who really yeah. becomes his best friend. Yeah. And they I, I really love how their relationship develops over the course of the movie, because it, you know, it, it's these two people who've both had a difficult time mm -hmm. and they find commonality in that. And they're really able to communicate with each other. And sometimes it's hard, uh, <laughs> especially in the five-plus-minute fight scene. That's spectacular <laughs> Which is stuff. awesome. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about that for a minute. So there's this fight scene uh, in the middle of the movie where uh, our, our hero, Nada, 
is trying to convince Frank to put on the sunglasses. And at this point, Nada has already kind of gone rogue and he's wanted by the police. Um, and so Frank is, you know, clearly disturbed by that, as would anyone be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, because, you know, you don't want to be associated with someone who's wanted by the authorities. And, no. you know, you, you know, you're going to be guilty by association. So he, he's kind of trying to stay away from him and he doesn't want to hear anything he has to say. And so Nada just is trying to convince them, and they end up getting in this fight where they're both extremely stubborn, you know? <laughs> Nada just wants him to put on the sunglasses. Frank just doesn't want to put on the sunglasses. And they're just diametrically opposed in their, you know, separate missions. So they just keep fighting. Like, you think it's over. It's not over. They keep fighting. And it's really well choreographed. Obviously, you know, you got Roddy Piper, who's a wrestler. So he's used to doing these kind of fake fights. Um, although, you know, you're still getting contact. It's yeah. just pulled. Um, but it's very, I mean, it it looks pretty real when we're watching this. And, and Keith David holds his own big time uh, in the scene. And what I really like about it is... That it feels real because they continue to get tireder and tireder mm -hmm. as this fight goes on. You could tell it's really taken it out of them. Because I think we see a lot of movies where, you know, people are just fighting and fighting and fighting. But they're just as fresh as a daisy. Yeah. You know, after they've been, like, exerting themselves to such a high level. And this, that's not the case. I mean, these are both two in-shape guys. They work construction. They're going to have some stamina. But even they start to to wither, you know, by the end. And we see that again in Atomic Blonde. Atomic Blonde has a really good fight scene where the people just get super tired. And I liked that in that, too. Another and I, great movie. Yeah. And at the time I saw that, I didn't really remember this one. I didn't really remember this scene and how, you know, they kind of fade in their energy over the course of it. But it's really cool. It's great the way that they do it. I mean, they said that they rehearsed that scene for a good period of time so that when they came in to shoot it they really had worked it now what i found so impressive is john carpenter also wants things to be very safe so i mean they have this fight out in the alley right i, I mean you know there's pavement that they keep slamming down on what is so fascinating is they actually have mats on the ground that you can't you know, really see because it's the same color as the pavement. It blends in. And then for the shots where you don't actually see the pavement, they have like real, you know, cushions there. So they can, you know, take the hit, fall down and not just go straight into the pavement. But with that being said, I mean, both with Keith David and Roddy Piper, they helped each other. You know, they became great friends during this. Because Keith David helped Roddy Piper with the acting, and Roddy Piper helped Keith David, you know, with the fighting. I mean, in that massive fight, they actually reached a point where it just wasn't looking right. And so Roddy Piper said to Keith David, just just hit me. Let's just do it. And, and you know, Keith David laughed. He's like, well, you know, I gave some and I got some. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, you know, the scene looks incredible. I mean, you really, really believe that they've left it all out there. And, and it makes sense because when you do not want to move, when you have your stance, you are not going to change for any reason. And I, I think that it's just fantastic you know how it happens. And again, because I feel like there are all these political themes in the movie, it kind of makes me think about, um, you know, actually the drafting of the Constitution. <laughs> they, you know, like all these guys, right? They'd all be together and they'd be raising hell with each other. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I'm too far out there, but it's just like whenever you want to make a real change, whenever you want to do something, you know, it is a real exertion. It's not just something where where people accept it. Yeah. No, everything is a struggle, like, with that. And, and again, these they are opposed, you know. Like, he doesn't want... Keith David's character, Frank, doesn't want to hear about this bullshit, you know. <laughs> he doesn't want to hear it. He I don't thinks... want to put on the fucking glasses. <laughs> <laughs> he just doesn't care. He's like, look, I don't care what made you go crazy. I don't want to go crazy, you know, and I get it. And I, I mean, it's it's funny. Finally, Nada, like, beats him enough that he can put the glasses on him. Right. And, you know, he sits up and he immediately, you know, sees two of these ghoul people walking by. Mm -hmm. And he has, you know, the epiphany as well. And then we have the next scene, which is them looking swollen and beat up. Oh, man, you know, they look so sore. Walking to this hotel where they're going to stay. Um, but, you know, it's it's cool because this is another part of the development of their friendship, you mm -hmm. know. And, and we see it in the middle. Like, they don't even want to hurt each other. But they are just so stubborn, and it's a really funny scene. It is long. I mean, it wasn't planned to be that long, I guess. But they just, you know, kept going and had this great plan, and Carpenter went with it. And we watched a great interview with John Carpenter where, you know, the interviewer asked, Hey, did, did you know, did you or anybody else ever think about cutting that scene down? And John Carpenter goes, Fuck no. <laughs> He he said that when he wrote the script, he just had like some blank pages that he just wrote, fight, next page, fight continues. You know, he just wanted to see what these guys could bring because Roddy Piper, I mean, he is a wrestler. He is a professional. He knows how to make this look good. I mean, I've never seen a battle in my memory that's in three parts like this, you know, and again, it just keeps flipping. You keep thinking, okay, Keith David has got Piper. I guess the sunglasses are going to have to wait. I mean, I think that's my, one of my favorite parts of the fight is like Keith David has laid out Roddy Piper <laughs> and he picks up the sunglasses and he just fucking throws them <laughs> against the wall. <laughs> You're just a piece of shit. That's he good. doesn't want to do it. I, I mean, it's great. And again, how do we grow? We grow you know, in, in relationships a lot of times through hardship, right? Yeah, struggling with each other and arguing. And, you know, then they learn more about each other and it does bring them closer together. And when you're dealing with guys, I mean, you know, it, it is stereotypical. But, you know, it, at least the way it was depicted back then and, 
you know, you could get into a fight and then you could be friends. I've actually had this before. It, it, it was like the stupidest thing. Like, you, I got into a fight with this person and then later on we just laughed about it. It's like, you really got me there in the chin. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe I hit you as hard as I could in the face and you just barely moved. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like, it's this nuts. Masculinity that I don't understand. It's toxic. That's why. Either that. Or, <laughs> well, either that or it's just something I personally am like, no. I mean, whenever I get in any type of a fight with someone whether it's verbal or or whatever we are not closer after that <laughs> like i don't know no, it makes but sense. i'm stubborn so i think that makes me make up my mind about someone and then once that's happened there's really no way out um but yeah I, i'm a little stubborn that way well i mean i don't want to make it out like i'm some kind of great fighter or boxer i mean no, you're shit. not no. no i mean i got no fights in like grade school for no Christ i mean you're so. not making it out like that, uh, yeah right. no it's just like i'm the type of guy that i don't know at this point like i i'm like uh i don't know maybe we do it this way or <laughs> you know what i mean i don't know you're living the peaceful life now. <laughs> yeah, just kind of like just a real pain in the ass, try to wear you down kind of life is where I'm at. That's 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 where I'm at. I'm in that angry uh, uh, letter writing phase. <laughs> I live there. I've been there since I was born. Well, I am a little bit argumentative, I think. Um, yeah, I tend to be that person who's kind of fighting the, the, the word fight. Um which, unfortunately, you have to deal with a lot. I'm lawyering you to death half the time. I wanted to be a lawyer, too, in the beginning. Don't forget. And, I mean, it's like I thought the idea of being a lawyer at the beginning was so great. And I took my first government class, and it was really funny because I just argued with the teacher. And it was just because I really didn't like it. And the teacher thought I was great because I argued with him. And then I told him I was dropping the class and he was he was bummed out. So it was just like, oh, I, I don't know. So, I mean, I thought about it. I don't yeah. like to back down. You and I are both people that don't like to back down. Yeah. And when we fight fight is when we see something happening that's wrong. Yeah. You know, when there's like some injustice, there's something that is clearly not right then we step up to the plate. This is true. I mean, anytime I could tell you stories of me getting in a lot of trouble growing up, it was generally because I was angry about something that I found unfair. Mm -hmm. And my very healthy disrespect for authority kicked in. And I fought like tooth and nail against a teacher or an adult of some other type um, because I thought what they were doing was wrong. And... <laughs> Clearly, John Carpenter has this bone in his body, too, mm -hmm. you know, because, I mean, this whole movie is about having a healthy disrespect for authority figures, because, you know, you have to ask, who conferred this authority? Why is it that this person, you know, has authority and I don't, you know? Right. Or, or, or you know, what gives them the right to be an authority? What gives them the right to tell me what to do? I'm not into that so much, so... I think that you have to question that. And I think questioning authority is kind of the most important thing you can teach people. Kids, for example, we didn't have any. But if we did, I would have probably, you know, been mad at myself for giving them such a healthy disrespect for authority. <laughs> because then they would be, you know, questioning my own authority. And I would be proud of them for that, though. So it's okay. 
Well, that's John Carpenter. He said the same thing. He said he doesn't trust authority. <laughs> Unless he's the authority. <laughs> Unless he's the authority, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I get that. I get that. Yeah. Um, no, but I would want people to question my authority, too. Same. I mean, you know, I, I'm not infallible. Um, no. But, you know, in an artistic director position, and especially with John Carpenter, because... When he is making a movie, he's kind of doing so many things on the movie. It's not just directing. He's writing. He's doing music. He's doing all kinds of stuff. You know, he has such a vision. And that's another thing I really love about him is he is visionary. And he also has kind of a do-it-yourself attitude. Yes. Um, where he kind of wants to be in charge of a lot of, a lot of these different things. And you know, he'll hire people and he'll get people he trusts, very talented people. But he also does a lot of the stuff himself, which I respect. I love the one man band style of working, you know. Yes. In my lifetime, all the people that I really respect are people who have a lot of irons in the fire and have a lot of abilities. You know, if there's people in a band and there's one guy who can play, like, all the instruments and sing and do, you know, write and do everything. That's the one, you know, that's the sure. one who I think is cool. And that's the kind of thing with John Carpenter. It's like, he, he's driving the bus. He's the mechanic. He painted it. He, you know, he picked the soundtrack for the trip. Like, he did everything. And I think that's really cool. Well, he actually, I mean, this I found so fascinating. I mean, he does the music for his films. That's awesome to begin with. But in addition to that, he actually improvises it. So he sits down with the movie when it's cut, and then he jams out to the movie. He just creates the sound as he's watching it. Uh, now, he had someone with him, Alan Howarth, if I said that right. And um, the two of them, you know, came together. Now, Alan Howarth, he was the guy that had all the technical know-how. He had everything set up. And John Carpenter is kind of like me in that... I would love to, you know, be involved with that, but there are some things where I know my boundaries. You know, he would say to this guy, okay, just make sure everything is set up, you know, all the instruments, the synthesizers, make sure it's in tune, make sure when we hit record, you know, we're really recording. And, you know, this guy would be like, well, I'll tell you how it works. He goes, look, I don't want to know. He's like, I don't want you to tell me. I just want to go in and I want to play. And... The first piece of music that they worked on was at the beginning. And kind of this backbeat of the music is actually to Roddy Piper's steps. <laughs> and they showed you that, you know, actually in a, a behind the scenes. And it was incredible, you know, just to see that. We didn't actually see them playing live, but we saw John Carpenter and Alan talking about playing on this soundtrack. And uh, when you hear the music and then you see Piper walking, you're like, oh, wow, that's how, you know, this came about. And then they just kept adding to it. Yeah. You know, and Carpenter also does some other awesome things in here, which I didn't know. So, for instance, like on the traffic lights, there's this little satellite on top of them. Okay. And it says sleep. Now, it's John Carpenter's voice actually saying sleep, but... Alan, he just turned it down. He so, yeah, he slowed it down. Yeah, slowed it down. Thank you, not turned it down. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he did a lot of things with timing, um, like you were saying about, you know, timing up the music to the steps and slowing down the voice so that it was more of a subliminal 
kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And that was really cool. Like, I thought that the way they did that was really neat. I loved it. I mean, and again, it's just, it's all together, you know? I mean, we, you know, Georgia and I like doing this stuff. I mean, again, we, we met through a theater company, and it was like... You know, I would direct things, I'd produce things, you know, I worked with other people, you know, I'm not saying I did it all by myself, but it's like, you really get in there, you know, when you do it, and you really, you really make it, you really make it your own, and um, we actually did a, a short film, Georgia and I, years ago, and we actually... You know, did music for it too. Did we mm-hmm. talk about that before? Um, I think we did. Yeah, I think we might have just mentioned it. We wrote a song. We did the song. You know, um, somebody helped us record it because we kind of like hit our technical wall, oh, as yeah. John Carpenter did too. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, we did the the actual creating the song part and playing the instruments, and I double track sang it, and you did the harmonica, which was very cool. It was fun. And yeah, it was it was neat. We we did that. We edited it. Oh yeah. We shot it. We wrote we, it. I built a DVD menu for it. Like yeah. we did all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, so we've jumped in with that kind of thing. And I, you know, when you have no budget or a low budget, why not? You know, I it's... admire people who do that. I want to explore. I want to find new things. And it was it was fun because originally when we did the short film, George and I were like, we're, like, we're going to do everything. But yeah, we couldn't. And yeah. so we had someone that worked with us, that, that played with us, and we got to do our song. We got to do some great stuff with that. And they did the score, which is just incredible to watch someone create a score. Yeah. And again, it's just like the John Carpenter system. We watch this musician just watch our film and then just come up with this magic right on the spot. Yeah. Um, what a and process. It was really cool because it's not the way I think. Like, it's a different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think you have to kind of be afraid, be not afraid to fail or not afraid to experiment and do things multiple times. Yeah. Because that's how you learn, you know? And I think being open to that experience is. Something that we lose as we get older, like you don't want to try something if you don't know that you can do it and, you know, things like that. But I think when we're kids, we're a little bit more open to that. And you and me probably are a little more open to it than most people I know because we just like to to do things and we're curious about how things work. And, you know, I think that that level of openness is good, at least for me, because you know learning is like one of my favorite things and you can only learn if you don't know everything yeah well it's being willing to go out there and you know succeed fail learn hopefully all of it that's it i mean john carpenter had a note um in meg foster's trailer meg foster plays holly and she is a person that actually is wanting to be with the aliens. She wants to move up with them. She is not a good guy, which is a bummer. And she kills Keith David, which straight out fucking sucks. <laughs> yeah. But she's a super cool person. We saw this interview with her. John Carpenter loved working with her, said she was brilliant. And we saw some of the behind-the-scenes work where she hits Roddy Piper with the bottle right before a stunt double flies out of a window, I don't know, two, three stories up and then rolls down a hill. A very violent scene. Crazy. Anyway, so 
When she got into her trailer, there was a note from John Carpenter that said roughly, you know, if it stops being fun, then we stop doing it. And I love that because he is having fun. He is enjoying this process. And it's a team that works together. They work hard. They work safely. You know, John Carpenter is very good with working with the actors. You know, Roddy Piper talked about how Carpenter spent so much time with him, really digging into the script, making sure that Piper actually, you know, his voice was heard in the role. Mm -hmm. Piper had a lot that he brought to the table because he had a very uh, hard life growing up. It seemed like there was homelessness, uh, you know, really you working to eat. Um, You know, difficult, difficult stuff, all of which is touched on in this film. Um, There's a scene where John Nada actually gets this teenage kid kind of out of harm's way and returns him to his family. And when they were watching the film, John Carpenter and Roddy Piper in the commentary, Piper said, you see how I'm holding this kid you know, when I'm bringing him back to his family, he's like, I, I didn't plan to do that. I didn't mean to do that. But he felt like that that kid was like young him, you know, and he was bringing young him back to his family. And, and John Carpenter felt that, too. It was it was a really personal film. I mean, there's that whole monologue that Piper delivers. And it's excellent. Oh, and, and wow. And it's really emotional. Mm-hmm. Unexpected. Yes. Um, and it's a great scene where, you know, he's he's acting, but he's really, I think, telling his own story somewhat. And he, you know, he touches on that in the commentary. And, you know, it, it was it's really important that we see this character as a guy with this history of struggle and he still wants to, you know, do this heroic thing to help people. That makes him like so much more heroic. You know, we see him. I mean, Roddy Piper really did bring a lot to this role. Sure did. In that, but also, you know, in very specific ways that John Carpenter, you know, <laughs> like let him use some of his lines. Oh, yes. You know? Yes, yes. So I would say arguably like the most famous line from this movie is when Nada has kind of figured out what's going on. And he kind of goes rogue, mm-hmm. which I kind of love that his first reaction here is t- to just fight, to fight back. I mean, that's that's the kind of character we have here. He's a fighter, right? Right. So, yeah, he's in the supermarket. He sees these people. He starts freaking out. He kind of leaves there and then just, like, has a confrontation with the police gets firearms, goes in a bank, like he's ready to take everybody out. Yeah. It's like his initial response is, I got to fight back against this. Um, Not, you know, go cower in a corner and be afraid or be sad or be depressed, but to fight back. And it's so great. And he goes in there and he drops this line, I've come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubble gum. <laughs> And that was actually, you know, a line that, that Roddy Piper had come up with his, with on his own and had it in, like, this little notebook. And he was, like, showing it to John Carpenter. And, and Carpenter's like, oh, I like that one. Yeah, we're going to use that one. So I, I really enjoy that, 
you know, he took this guy, and Carpenter was a wrestling fan, and he was a fan of Roddy Piper, and he meets him, you know, and they become close, and, you know, they worked so closely together on this movie, and you can see that. Like, it, it translates really well, because you have this guy who's not a professional actor, he doesn't have, like, a lot of acting training or anything, but he's able to give a performance that is super heartfelt in places. Yes. And also, you know, we know who this character is. Like, between the directing and the acting, like, you really get to know who this John Nada character is, and he becomes your hero. I mean, going back to the monologue, because, again, I think that really speaks to Piper's acting more than anything else. Piper delivers this monologue, which basically talks about his loss of trust. It talks about his father uh, physically abusing him, you know, with, with, you know, had a razor blade to his throat. I mean, this is scary shit. You, you know what I mean? And he doesn't have anything you know, around him. It isn't like there's a spaceship coming in the window or, you know, there's some great colors on the wall. No, it's Piper in a dimly lit room, sitting in a chair, just talking. And it's so powerful. And to let yourself be that bare and be that open when you're known as being this big, tough guy is extremely impressive it, it, it shows just how much trust he had with Carpenter and with, with Keith David, who is in this scene as well. He, he listens to him. They're in a hotel room, and Keith David is, is laying on the bed as Piper is sitting in this chair and giving him this monologue. Um, I, I, you know, I love it. And then, you know, we actually, we come back, you know, I'd say about the last 30 minutes of the movie turns into straight comic book action. We're talking amazing panels. It looks like you're watching a living comic book. When these guys get the guns, that's when the film really cranks up, you know, because what's great is they talk about how they wanted to maintain some sense of realism in the action scenes. You know, Carpenter is like, you know, you can't have, you know, these people just aiming perfectly like this. You know, you can't have, maybe it was Keith David said, you know, you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger that's holding, you know, two M16s and you can't really aim when you're doing that. You can't really have the precision that you need to hit your targets. So they had this need for realism in, in this sci-fi future horror story, which I absolutely love because these grounded performances are exactly what makes this feel like it has so much weight to it. And I, I love that. I love that they have so much heart in this film. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these guys are fighting for the future and the present of the human race. They are doing this to keep human beings alive. So the stakes are incredibly, incredibly high. Yeah, they're sacrificing themselves yes. in the end for this. And, you know, they know that that's what the stakes are, and they do it anyway. Mm -hmm. And and that's, that's a really big deal here. Like, I think it, it forces you to question yourself. Like, 
what would you do in this situation? Like, what would your feelings be here? You know? So one thing that we haven't very much touched on yet is kind of the relationship between Holly and Nada. Um, he, they first run into each other, um, when he kind of kidnaps her Yeah. after he's gone rogue and done like these vigilante acts and he's wanted by the authorities. Um, so he kind of gets her to drive him away from like the hot zone, um, to her house where she lives and it's kind of up in the hills, you know, she's presented as more of like this middle class, although to me. It's like upper, upper middle. But she's like, you know, a career woman who works at a TV station. Yes. You know, and uh, that becomes important because we realize that, you know, broadcasting out the signal, you know, that hides the true identity of the ghouls is like a big deal. And that's something they need to disrupt in order to kind of expose them and end their tyranny. So he is exhausted at this point when they get to the house and she's terrified because she's been kidnapped mm-hmm. and it's kind of a really tense scene, but it's really interesting. And he ends up, you know, getting smacked in the head and knocked out the window, as you said. Yeah, hit uh, with a champagne bottle, I believe. I, yeah. Or is it wine? I think it's champagne. It's like a green, it looks like champagne to me. Um, but he leaves behind his sunglasses, um, probably by accident, because he does try to go get another pair where he had left the box, but it's gone. Um, yeah, so that was the first time they ran into each other. Well, the second time they run into each other is when they're at the Rebels' hideout. You know, at this point, both John and Frank, you know, they're on their mission. They are going to move forward with taking care of this alien situation. So they go to this rebels meeting and when they're there, Holly actually shows up and, you know, it's like, Oh, you're here. And she apologizes to John and you think everything is good to go. But at that point, evil forces break in and they start shooting up everyone. And it's like, Oh no, it it turns into like a final stand situation. You know, John wants to run back and and find Holly. He wants to run back and find Holly and save her. And Frank is like, no, he's like, we got to keep going. I I don't think she made it. And again, as I mentioned before, this is when we have this fantastic, fantastic shootout in comic book style. Just these really great panes in this really fun lighting. You know, it's just this red lighting in an alleyway. And we have a ton of machine guns. You know, this is pure 80s fun. This is what we signed up for. So it's like you have this alien body count, you know, but again, we're paying attention to the rules of weaponry in real life. You know, uh, you know, the way you aim, you shoot, you change magazines, the whole nine yards. And what happens is that Frank and Nada have to escape. They're cornered in this alley. There's no way out. And what we find out is these watches that these aliens carry. We actually had found this out earlier, but we didn't know how it worked. There was a watch from one of the aliens that was, you know, either shot or triggered somehow. And it opened up a portal on the ground. And both John and Frank, they jump into this. And they end up 
in this underground walkway, this underground tunnel. Very creepy. Now, John Carpenter explained these are actually, you know, tunnels that connect all these different municipal buildings downtown in Los Angeles. So you can get from one place to the other. So John and Frank are down there and they actually run into this drifter you know played by george buck flower that we saw at the beginning now he's in a tuxedo he's working with the aliens and he thinks they are too yes because he sees them there how else would they have gotten there yeah and he's like oh good you know glad you joined up you should have changed clothes you know because <laughs> now he's all spiffed up and he has his hair slicked back and everything that's very funny and all the aliens are having this big party it's like this big gala you know, and they're down there and, you know, someone at the podium is like, you know, we have shut down the resistance and all the aliens are clapping. They're so happy because, you know, the rebels have been killed. It's been shut down and there is no longer any threat to their domination of the planet. It's really, really frightening. Yeah. You know, because you see all these people that just don't care about the human race at all. No. I mean, even beyond not caring, they want to destroy them yes. or, you know, again, use them. And it was really interesting when they were running in those tunnels, they see these guards and one of the guards is holding like the PKE meter from <laughs> Ghostbusters. Yes. That's great. <laughs> it has no meaning, but it was just a funny like thing to see. Um, but yeah, so this is where the signal is coming from, though, and that's what they need to disrupt. So while they're in this building where the transmitter is, they hook up with Holly again. And it is um, the third time mm -hmm. that she and Nada are together. And we see that like he's kind of developed some kind of feeling for her yeah. over the course of this, you know, um, situation from the kidnap to you know, understanding that they're on the same team and fighting the same fight and then, you know, running into each other again and they're going to go and take out this transmitter. And when they're running up the stairs to get to it, as she actually takes out Frank, which sucks big time. So bad, so bad. Uh, and so, of course, when they both get up onto the roof, he realizes she pulls a gun on Nada and he realizes that she's actually not on his team. It's very upsetting. Um, and then he has to kill her. So he kills her. And then he takes out the transmitter but is mortally wounded in the process. And finally flips off, you know, the aliens <laughs> as the transmitter is destroyed in his kind of final act of defiance, which is super awesome. Yep. And then he lifts you know, this spell, frankly, that the aliens have because everyone can see things for what they are. They can see the aliens and they can also, if I'm not mistaken, they can clearly see these messages um, that are up all around them. Yeah. So it, it it's very strong. I mean, for John Nada, he really is a tragic hero because Holly is his love interest. Yeah. And he has this real belief in people after everything that he's been through. And he really believes in Holly. I mean... You know, she hit him in the head with a champagne bottle and knocked him out of a second floor window and he rolled down a hill. I mean, that's, you know, okay. I, I mean, that's cool. You know what I mean? You move past that. And then the coincidence of being at the rebel base and then like seconds later, the bad guys show up. 
okay, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, when we're going to destroy the satellites at this television station, you're there. I mean, I guess you work there, but, you know, he just thinks that he's saving her. He thinks that he is saving Holly. And it's so sad because he wants to protect her, but she is actually killing everyone. Well, it's the trauma bonding thing that you talked about before. Yeah. You know, he and Frank become friends through like the shared struggle. He thinks that that's happening with her too. Mm. But in reality, she's just, you know, following her course to get what she wants, which is, you know, she's buying into the alien's dream, right, right? right? You know, and thinking, like, if I just do these things, then I'll, you know, succeed. And it's it's sad because he has seen the truth and she refuses to see the truth. And, you know, even though she literally knows what the truth is, she still can't see it. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously she can literally see the ghouls and all this stuff. She's got the contacts in. I mean, you know, she's worn the sunglasses. But she still believes that that's like the only way that she can advance in life, I guess. And so, you know, it's just a really unfortunate thing. And she, you know, he has to kill her, which is really hard. Yeah. You know, but she's just killed Frank, so he knows he's lost his best friend. Now he has to take out, you know, this other person who he felt close to. And this is a guy who hasn't felt close to anybody we, we sense no. for a very long time. So for him to have, you know, finally made these strides towards being close to someone, and then he loses both of those people, it's really tragic. Really, really tragic. If I'm not mistaken, John Nada actually has a, a ring on that looks like a wedding ring. Mm-hmm. You know, so that gives you the feeling that he did have someone once upon a time and, you know, they're gone. Yeah. Well, I, that was actually Roddy Piper was married at the time and refused to take off the ring. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> but I had the same reaction as you. I thought, you know, having that ring on kind of gives the sense of there being like something, a much deeper backstory to this guy you know, that you can imagine that he, he might have had a home and a wife, right. you know, and have lost that somehow. Um, so there there is this tragic potential already in him, and it is borne out over the course of this movie. The other thing I do want to mention, and Georgia just touched on it, the Rebels actually developed contact lenses that you could use in place of the sunglasses, more discreet, I would guess. But, you know, we like the old ways, so yeah. we still have the sunglasses on. And I we, prefer the sunglasses. Yeah, we will not change to the contacts. <laughs> um, I, we suggest you do the same. But, I, you know, <laughs> I love how they portray, like, what the world really is. Mm. Like, the black and white and these signs everywhere. You know, money is just white paper that says, this is your God. Right. You know, there's the obey, marry and reproduce, like all of these, you know, subliminal messages underneath everything. And what was really amazing, and you and I didn't know this for sure, is that uh, when we see those billboards initially, after uh, Nada first puts on the sunglasses, 
and and sees these billboards. Those are matte paintings that were done wow. by this this guy Jim Danforth. And not only the black and white, but also the color of those billboards is matte painting. Um, and I thought that was just really amazing because it looks really good. Like, I don't know. We watched it in 4K, which looked phenomenal. And I'm not sure if they cleaned anything up or anything like that. But these looked really sharp and, and just beautiful. And I was impressed. Well, I remember seeing it on VHS, and it, it certainly never looked this good. I know that the DP actually worked on Prince of Darkness, which came out the year prior in 1987. Uh, Gary Kibbe was the DP on this. You know, and you can tell it's a person that really enjoyed their work, and you can really feel that in this project. There is so much love and teamwork in this. And again, what do we see in this movie? We see people coming together, and that is how you can get rid of tyranny. You yeah. know, I mean, it's not suggesting you take it literally, you know what I mean, and, and start shooting up the joint. Far from it. You know, that's not, <laughs> well, that's I not mean... where we're going. But it's you need to stand up. You need to stand up, and you need to stand together. And that's how you can bring these things to light. That's how, you know, it can stop. As if everyone says, we are not doing this anymore. We are working together. We do not like what you are up to. We all live here. We need to change this. Yeah, and I mean, that's the message of the movie for sure. Because, you know, at first he does, tr uh, Nada does try to go up against the world on his own. Mm -hmm. And he fails because yeah. that's not going to work. Nope. You know, he has to team up with this group of people and we you know we didn't mention peter jason who's another staple actor in john carpenter's films um who plays gilbert yes he plays gilbert um who is you know one of the leaders of this resistance movement along with uh the the street preacher mm -hmm. actor who's excellent oh my god he's so good um I, I was so excited on the commentary when john carpenter talked about him being a shakespearean type of character you know he's the blind preacher who's the one who sees the truth you know blind man who who's the only one who can see um and also kind of like this chorus figure as well in a lot of ways and i adored that obviously um because again john carpenter's just so smart and he can just so seamlessly kind of bring together all of these different elements to make one thing that's a great great movie um i just think this movie is awesome I love it, too. I mean, everyone, again, I keep saying the same thing, but it's what I like. Everyone is brought together. There are no color lines. No. You know, everyone is different, and everyone is unified against this evil alien force. Yeah, I, I love that, too. I think that, you know, I think you made such a great point about how all the people who worked on this movie kind of came together and in the movie, the characters also come together because we've watched things before that are about the making of. And I don't think I've ever had a sense before that, you know, the crew who was making the movie was so unified. Like all of these people seem like they're having a great time telling a great story, you know, getting a chance to do something that they love. 
and just being creative and, and making all these amazing choices that come together so well to tell this story that has such a clear theme. I'm impressed with that. I'm, I'm always going to be impressed with something like that. I am too. And I'm impressed that these people are approaching work as play. You don't see that. You, yeah. We see so many technical marvels. We see so many wonderful projects. But the fun, I don't know that that's always able to be there because you work so hard. You have deadlines. You have pressure. You have a budget. And this just said... We are going to work really hard, but we are going to play. Again, just like the note he gave to Meg <laughs> Foster, when it stops being fun, we stop doing it. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's maybe what makes us love certain movies is how well they were able to like capture this lightning in a bottle. Mm -hmm. And clearly that's what happened here. It was exactly the right people and not always the obvious choice like in the case of Roddy Piper. But putting Roddy Piper into this role is exactly the person that was needed for it. 100%. He couldn't be more perfect as this rough around the edges guy with this backstory that really lines up with, you know, the character. Roddy Piper's backstory and not his backstory. There's a lot of commonality there. Yes. And it really brings so much to the story that's subtext. Um, that I just, I think that that is a, a major reason for it to be successful, you know? The honesty is what makes it so great. And again, it's honesty in fantasy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and it teaches us something. It, yeah. it points something out. It makes you think twice. You know, again, the biggest thing for me with this movie is it makes you want to say, hey, I don't think this is okay. Yeah, it makes you question the status quo mm -hmm. it makes you question your position in the world it makes you think twice when you see something that you know you might have just accepted you know it, it makes you question things that you just generally accept like is this right and i think that's something that we need to challenge ourselves with more as yeah, people absolutely you know we get complacent with the way things are and say well this is just the way it is and it can't be changed and this movie really shows us that it can be changed and that you don't necessarily need to be the person in charge to make that change. You, you know, need to find your people, you know, and kind of band together and, and work toward that change yourself. And every person, no matter, you know, what your education level is or what your status is in society or what your background is, anyone can fight for what's right. Well, and you need to say it stops here because they actually show that the aliens travel all over the universe. They are everywhere. Yeah. So they are invading every planet and they are making it theirs. Yeah. They're... All of it. it. It's just like, I, I mean, I can't even think that big. <laughs> you know, it, it's just like galaxies yeah. are theirs. They're forcing everything to conform to their way and mm -hmm. their will and you know it's gross but that's what happens with power yeah absolute power corrupts absolutely that's what's happening here so yeah i think i don't know just such a brilliant movie and at the same time so simple in a way you know i'm not 
I, I'm using that as a compliment here because I like complex things. I like things that are hell. I, I like Christopher Nolan movies. What can be more complex? Right. But I also love the simplicity of this film where it has like this message about consumerism and, you know, human decency and, and just a really important theme boiled down to a very simple thing, which is, you know, a guy who has kind of been going along and suddenly sees reality in a different way. I mean, and that actually goes back to the short story that this is based on, mm-hmm. you know. In the short story, the character is kind of woken up through an accident of hypnosis. You know, he's at a hypnosis show when the the hypnotist says wake up he actually wakes up and is able to see everything really whereas i think john carpenter does a really brilliant thing here by having it be like this device you know that allows you to see it differently because that enables nada to go back and forth Um, I think that if, you know, in the story where it's just the guy's perspective totally changes, that could almost be like, you know, you've lost your mind. Right. Right. Because there's no returning to what you what you were seeing before. With this, it's more of a matter of perception where you can clearly see that he's perceiving it differently when he's using the sunglasses or the contact lenses later. Um, I think that's a really smart choice for the movie and it also helps us as the viewer to be able to go back and forth between what he's perceiving without the glasses and with the glasses well and i also have to hand it to john carpenter that he manages to make this all so much fun and this is great and i did not think about this until right now so john carpenter made this movie with this message okay and this is a hollywood film right this is a hollywood film And this is something that is part of the machine that can definitely give you a message. (laughs) And, you know, he made this film saying, wake up. Yeah. And he did it by using the structures of power that are in place (laughs) to give you that information, to amplify that signal. You are a genius, sir. Yeah, that's a super flex Mm -hmm. above all other flexes. And I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. What a great movie. I'm really glad we got a chance to watch this again and talk about it. For sure. Well, I think that wraps it up for They Live. Thank you very much for joining us as we uh, embark on this John Carpenter horror movie series. I'm very excited <laughs> to keep talking about these movies because he's Carpenter's so smart and such a good filmmaker. And I just can't wait to see what else we get to say about him as we move on. Next week, we're going to be back with The Fog, yeah, which is a a film that he made in 1980 uh, with Adrian Barbeau. And I'm really excited to talk about that one as well. I haven't seen this one very many times. And it was just released on 4K, so we're really psyched. Um, to see a restored version of this. I can't wait. I mean, I was late to this party also. I mean, I didn't see The Fog until much later. I don't know why it didn't get the airplay. You know, I remember when they did the remake of it. But getting to see the actual John Carpenter film, 
Wow. So, yeah, I can't wait for that ride. You know, that'll be out next week as we continue the John Carpenter Horror Marathon. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. So that was They Live. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, stay comfy. Keep your sunglasses on and stay comfy. <laughs>